Well, it was reported of John Calvin, one of the great reformers who was in Geneva, Switzerland. He went to Geneva there rather reluctantly and as a pastor of a reformed gathering, a church there, and he was fired. (laughs) He was asked to leave after less than two years because of some controversy with the city council there regarding communion. So he had to leave and he went off to Strasbourg, this independent city-state where he was the pastor for a little more than three years of uh, French exiles. Calvin was French, these French exiles pastoring them. But then the church in Geneva wanted him back, and they called him back, and very reluctantly he did. He returned to Geneva in September 1541, a little over three years, and that first Sunday he stepped into the pulpit, opened the Bible, and picked up at the very passage he left off on three years earlier. (laughs) I love that story of Calvin, (laughs) a man after my own heart. Um, Michael Horton, the professor, Reformation professor, commenting on that event, he said, the fact that Calvin picked up where he had left off in the text demonstrates his confidence in that word above all earthly powers. Perhaps even more than before, Calvin was convinced that the spirit working through the word could accomplish far more than all of his brilliance, conviction, and motivational skills could ever accomplish. Amen and amen. I believe that with all my heart. And so if it was good enough for Calvin, it's good enough for us today. I haven't been gone three years. I've been gone four months. But we are going to pick right up where we left off in the book of Second Kings. So I invite you, if you have your Bible, let's open there. Open with me, Second Kings. And we're in chapter 16, in case you forgot where we left off. Chapter 16 of Second Kings. Kings, find your place there. Well, these past couple weeks, we have all been drawn into the world of kings and queens, haven't we? With the death of Queen Elizabeth II, a 70-year reign. It's longer than any of the kings we're going to see in the book of Kings, a 70-year reign. And I know we Americans, we have kind of a rash towards royalty and monarchy and that. And we maybe sit with a little bit of uh, wonder and amazement at the outpouring of emotion, uh, especially from British people, the outpouring of emotion uh, over the death of the queen and how they loved her. Now, I know it's, it's a constitutional monarchy. It's not the same as just a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, yet... It is a small glimpse, isn't it? The queen and her reign, a small glimpse of the blessing it is to live under a good ruler. Carl Lafferton had this little article on Gospel Coalition, and this quote I thought was helpful. He said, To the extent that Elizabeth was kind, servant-hearted, and consistent, she showed us the blessing it is to live under a good leader. She pointed us to the truth that humanity was created to enjoy life under an all-powerful, all-knowing, always-loving ruler who, like the queen, isn't swayed by opinion polls, never needs to run for election, and whose authority isn't dependent on majority opinion. Humans are happiest under a perfect monarch. (laughs) Believe that? 
That's really the primary message of the book of Kings as we step back into the world of monarchy. After all, monarchy is God's design for his kingdom. Did you know that? That's God's design for his kingdom, monarchy, ultimately in the king, King Jesus. We will live forever under that benevolent, perfect monarchy. And that's what we desire. So we get a little glimpse of it in a a ruler, but only a little glimpse. The book of Kings, by contrast, gives us many glimpses of Kings, but almost all of them not very good. And it leaves us, it's supposed to, the big point of the book of Kings is to leave us longing for a better king, a perfect king. What would that be like to live under a perfect monarch, a perfect king, absolutely just, perfect, benevolent, good, kind? That's what we long for. So the book of Kings creates that longing in us, even by showing us Many, many kings who do not live up to that standard. Second Kings chapter 16 is where we're at. Let me do take a moment to reorient us. It has been four months. It was a little fuzzy for me as I came back into the book of Kings. I had to review just where we're at. But remember now the bigger picture here. We, we, as we study the Old Testament, we are tracing the story of the Bible that ultimately culminates in King Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of the whole story. We've said that many times. Again, that's the main takeaway of Kings. It points us to Jesus. We are longing for this better king. And as we come to this period in the history of Israel, the people of God is the nation of Israel. They are a nation. They are the descendants of Abraham. They have lived in this land. This was a promised land of Canaan. For several hundred years now, several hundred years. And now at this point in their history, they are ruled by various kings. It is a monarchy, but not just a pure monarchy. It is to be a theocracy. That is, the king is to rule under God. He is to be God's son, imaging the father. That's the true ideal king. Two major points of kind of background context for our study of kings, I'll limit myself to these, was first David. David was the great prototypical king, the one who did rule after God's own heart, according to God's law, the one who loved the Lord with all his heart. David is the standard by which all kings will be measured. But David was more than just a good example of a king God gave David that wonderful promise. Remember that? We've seen it so many times and it informs so much of the background of kings. He gave him the promise that David, through your seed, through your descendants, I will establish your kingdom forever. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. That's just an incredible promise. I have called it one of the most important promises of the whole Bible that informs the whole storyline of the Bible. And so as we open the book of Kings, as we have, David is dying. And the question is, who is this son? Who is this son? Who will it be? And it starts out really good, if you remember, with his first son, Solomon, who reigns the height of the empire of Israel, if you will, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. 
a righteous reign, a glorious reign. They even build the temple, which is part of the centerpiece of this book. God dwelling in their midst. And then it all goes bad. At the end of his life, he he moves into idolatry because of his wives and things come crashing down. So the first major point of background is that promise to David. We're looking for that fulfillment. But the second major point of background here is after Solomon, the kingdom, the nation divides. I put up the map that we've used many, many times on the screen there. The nation of Israel is split into these two nations. This is 931 B.C. In the north, it's just called Israel. That's the ten tribes. In the south is Judah. The capital is Jerusalem, the main tribe of Judah with Benjamin. It's really tragic. The nation is split, but that's part of God's judgment because of Solomon. It feels like things are way off track. How could this be God's plan and program? But it is. He has brought his discipline, split the nation. Now, the book of Kings, as we have been through it these 40-plus weeks, focuses mainly on the north, the nation of Israel. That's the main focus of the book of Kings. And unfortunately, as you see those pictures of those first kings of each of those nations, Jeroboam is the first king there, and he sets the trajectory for the whole nation. He's the one who institutes an alternative religion, sets up golden calves and Dan and Bethel so that people don't have to go to the temple. They don't have to go to Jerusalem. So he introduces a synchronized form of idolatry into the land and the land will never recover. The nation will never recover. They are apostate or idolatrous from their very beginning. When we get to Second Kings chapter 16, it's been about 200, almost exactly 200 years since this split. 200 years. Here's the summary of Israel. In those 200 years, they have had 20 kings, 20 kings. Those kings have been from nine different families. No one generation succeeding. Many, many assassinations. And every king has been said to be evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the history of Israel. God sent to them prophets. Remember Elijah and Elisha? Those great prophets. In fact, The heart of the book of Kings is really not about kings. It's about those two prophets and God's word coming and calling them back and preserving a remnant. But there's no change in Israel. No change. And the question we're left with as we come to this point in the story is, why are they still existing? Why hasn't God enacted his covenant curse where he said, I'm going to remove you from the land? When is that coming? It's coming. In fact, as we come here, we are introduced in chapter 15 to the last king of Israel. So next chapter, 17, is the fall. We'll get there. As we shift to the south now of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Solomon, first king, unfortunately starts off very badly. He built high places, these alternative places to worship instead of the temple. His heart was idolatrous. He engaged in idolatry here. But as we trace The nation of Judah, I'll put up a chart for you. You don't have to memorize all these names. I don't expect you to. I don't. But there's just a snapshot of the history of Judah since this split. Now, they've had ten kings, so half the number of Israel. Ten kings, most of them good kings, faithful kings, love the Lord. They follow the Lord here. And they are all from one family, the family of David. 
Remember the promise to David? That promise that controls everything that's happening here? That promise continues. A son of David, a seed of David, a descendant of David is on the throne. So ten kings, mostly good. They did right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the refrain we keep saying. They did right in the eyes of the Lord. There's a couple bad periods. <laughs> right at the beginning, Rehoboam and his son Abijah. And then right in kind of the middle there, when they get mixed up with the house of Ahab and intermarry with that house and that Athaliah, if you remember that whole story. So they have about eight or nine years there of evil, but then a great recovery. And as we come to 2 Kings 16, 15 and 16, they have a hundred years of faithfulness with one qualification. I put it in parenthesis there, HP. Not Hewlett-Packard, didn't stand for that. HP, you know, it stands for high places. The high places. This is the qualification over and over of these kings. They did right in the sight of the Lord, except they didn't remove those high places that Jeroboam set up. They didn't, they didn't check that aberrant form of worship. They didn't do away with it. They let it continue. And it's going to bear bad fruit. They compromised on that area. And that's not good. Hmm. Remember those high places where those shrines or cultic installations that were used for worship outside of the temple. Now, they may be saying they're worshiping Yahweh, but it's outside of the temple. It's out of bounds. It's not legitimate. They had sacrifices, feasts, their incense, but it's displeasing. So although this kingdom of Judah, the nation of Judah, is much more stable than Israel... Much more faithful than Israel, there are cracks in the foundation. There are fissures starting to show in this compromise. And the Lord is starting to send forms of judgment. In fact, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 15, right before our text, the last thing we read, just go back there, I'll put this on the screen. That was Jotham, the last king here. He was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He didn't take away the high places, though. And it says in verse 36, Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord, Yahweh, began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. Do you hear that? He's raising up these adversaries to wake them up to their compromise, to bring them to repentance on this area. So he's raising them up. Keep those two guys in mind. They show up in our chapter. And Jotham slept with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. So now we're ready. Chapter 16. Let's jump in here. Surprisingly, the author stays with the nation of Judah. Most of the focus is on Israel, but here... A whole chapter is devoted to one king in Judah. Let's read of him. Second Kings 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to put the first four verses up for you on the screen. Because this is that kind of summary evaluation that's given of every king. Remember these formulas that are used as part of the rhythm of the book. These regnal formulas. These kingly formulas that give us certain data about the king. And serve as a kind of a one or two line summary. So that's what we're given. But then we're given more. But let me read the summary first. Starting in verse 1. It says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And here it is. And he did not do what was right 
in the sight of Yahweh, his God, as his father David had done. It's the only time in the book of Kings that phrase is used of any king. He did not do what was right. Other times it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not do what was right. It's in contrast to what we've been reading. He did what was right. Those other kings, he did what was right. He did not do what was right. What a summary of your life. Would you like that? One line summary, did not do what was right. That's his whole life. That's tragic, isn't it? As I said, as we've been reading these summaries, we we should have this in mind. What would our one line summary of our life be from the Lord? We don't want this. What did he do? Verse three, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations. That's the Canaanites whom Yahweh had driven out from before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. He doesn't just allow those high places to exist. He's like the lead worshiper, the lead idolater. He's at those places in all this aberrant form of worship, worshiping like the Canaanites, walking like the Israelites. He is an idolater. It's just sad. Generations. We've had four generations of faithfulness. Where does an Ahaz come from? I don't know. But here he is. Now, unlike much of the book of Kings, the author goes on to describe two events in the life of Ahaz. As I said, the whole chapter It's not a very long chapter, but two events. So this is unusual. I'm just going to read these. These won't be on the screen. You can follow in your Bible or just listen as I finish out this account of Ahaz. Verse five. Then Rezin, remember Rezin, king of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. And at that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram. That's a port city way down the Gulf. And cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And it's probably better to read the Edomites came to Elath and lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Remember him? Saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present, or he could say a bribe, to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, captured it, and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put resin to death, that king of Aram. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And saw, while he's there, he saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent him from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and went up to it. And he burned his burnt offering and his meal offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of the peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, the one that was part of the temple, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning offering 
and the evening meal offering, offer the king's burnt offering and his meal offering, while with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offering, sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. Put the bronze al- but the bronze altar, that original one, shall be for me to inquire by. So Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the labor from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. And the covered way for the Sabbath which, had, which he had built in the house and the outer entry of the king he removed from the house of Yahweh because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David and his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. It's a very sad chapter and in some ways shocking in Judah's history. We've seen these small compromises with the high places up to this point, but now we have an unbridled idolatry and evil like that in Israel. In fact, that is kind of the main takeaway, the main point of this chapter, what I'll call here imitating Israel. That's what you're seeing. Judah now is imitating Israel (laughs) of all things, which is just unbelievable because Israel is about to be removed. Next chapter, they are going to be removed. And now Judah starts to imitate what Israel is doing. That shows up in the text in several ways. The most obvious back there in verse three, it just says Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He's imitating them. His behavior is like them. Again, this chapter deliberately by author is placed right before chapter 17, which is the downfall of Israel. And it's foreboding. You're starting to act like Israel. How can you survive? How can Judah survive? Also in this chapter, Ahaz is cast as a new Jeroboam in Judah. An inventor of deviant worship. The new Jeroboam in Judah. Now that might be kind of a cryptic reference. But again, if you remember that map. And the first king of Israel was Jeroboam. He's the one that introduced that new alternative form of religion. Don't go to the temple. I've set up my own calves here. You can worship them and ruin. Plunge the nation for its history into idolatry, into ruin. And now... Ahaz is seen as kind of a new Jeroboam now down in Judah. He is also the inventor of perverted, deviant worship and all his temple changes, a new altar. He just takes out the old altar of the temple. He's modifying the temple. He's serving in some ways as the head, as the priest. The author very deliberately compares him with Jeroboam by using that phrase he went up to the altar that's used three times of Jeroboam remember he built his own altar then he went up and presided that's what Ahaz is doing here the other ominous tone here in this chapter is that there is no reminder of God's promise to David but instead a reference to driving out the nations there's an ominous silence The other two periods of Judah's history when they had evil kings, and we saw those on the chart there, 
those two shorter periods when they had evil kings, starting with Rehoboam and his son Abijah. In both cases, the author inserts that the Lord did not remove them because of his promise to David. Both of those instances, he makes that clear. The reason the Lord didn't is because of his promise to David. That is not here. Now, God's promise to David will continue. It will not fail. But what we learn here, it's no safeguard against the judgment of Judah. Don't think you're safe because of that promise to David. Don't think you're safe because of the temple. They tended to think so. But instead, he mentions the driving out of the nations, the Canaan. If you're going to become like a Canaanite, you're going to be removed. So all of this is foreboding, isn't it? So that's kind of the main takeaway of chapter 16 in the flow of the book of Kings and the history of these kings. Judah is imitating Israel. How long before they are judged? How long before they are removed? Can't be long. And we'll see it coming. But now let's look a little closer at Ahaz, this idolater king, and draw out what I'll just entitle here, Aspects of Idolatry. just want to highlight these three parts of Ahaz's life, these three aspects of idolatry, because he is an idolater. Though he claims to worship Yahweh, he's worshiping all other kinds of things, including Canaanite deities. He's modifying the temple. He is an idolater. What are some aspects of his idolatry? Now, idolatry is the chief sin that we've seen over and over in the book of Kings. In fact, it's the fundamental sin of mankind. If you're not familiar with those words, idolatry, idolatry just refers to the worship, the worship of, the devotion to, the trust in that which is not the true God. Trust in false gods, as they do here. Trust in other foreign deities. Trust in anything that's created other than the true God. Give your devotion, your worship to that which is not God. It's the chief and fundamental sin and rebellion and treason of mankind. And it's peculiarly heinous here amongst God's people who have, he's, he's redeemed them. They belong to him in a unique way. For them to commit idolatry, he compares to adultery. The Lord demands exclusive allegiance because he's the only God. We're made for him. We're made to know him. And he demands exclusive allegiance. He demanded it from his people. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. And we've seen all through the book of Kings that this idolatry that's so entrenched provokes him to anger. Kindles his anger. His judgment. It lies about him, who he is. It belittles him. It's this act of treason. And it's true of all of mankind. We learned in the book of Romans that that fundamental sin is to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. The reason we see so many portraits here of idolatry is to impress upon us how entrenched it is. How entrenched it is in human beings. How entrenched, even Israel, is idolatry. It must be overcome. That's where the story's going. So here we get a little glimpse through Ahaz into some aspects of idolatry. I'll give you three of them. They're just from the three kind of statements about his life here. Number one, idolatry's abomination. 
idolatry's abomination. It's what it's called there in verse 3. What he engages in. Abomination of the nations. Here's the point. In this case, idolatry harms people. Even children. In that statement, do you see it there in verse 2? Or excuse me, verse 3. He even made his son pass through the fire. Now, it's the first time we've seen that in the book of Kings. This is a whole new level of abomination to the Lord. Now, we're used to idolatry, thinking of the vertical dimension of idolatry. That's chief, how it provokes the Lord to anger, how it belittles him, how it's treason against him. But there is also a horizontal aspect to idolatry that is harmful. It's harmful. And we would expect that, wouldn't we? We are made to know him as human beings. That's who we are. We are made to be in relationship to him. We are made to enjoy and to know him. And to the extent that we deviate from that, it brings harm. It brings ruin. It brings all sorts of evil. Do you, do you remember in our, our study of Romans and chapter 1 where Paul is highlighting this fundamental idolatry of mankind? Do you remember the fruit of that, that idolatry? I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Just, just listen to what he says as he speaks about engagement in this idolatry and God handing people over. And here's his description of the fruit of that idolatry. He says they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Where does that come from? Idolatry. That's the fruit of idolatry. It is harmful. It is harmful. I know today in our culture... If we have any kind of morality, any kind of ethic standard that we try to live by, it usually goes along the line and says, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. I don't, as long as that behavior doesn't hurt anybody. Or as Thomas Jefferson, at that same morality, used to say, it neither picks their pockets nor breaks their legs. <laughs> that was his statement. It doesn't really hurt anybody. It always hurts people. Always. We are made to be in relationship with God. So here we have a window into this form of idolatry practiced by Ahaz that mimicked the Canaanites, the worship of Moloch, God, their God. When he says he made his son pass through the fire, that's literal. It's actual child emulation or sacrifice through the fire as part of Canaanite worship. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Just celebrating new birth this morning and these little ones. Can you imagine passing that little one through the fire in appeasement of your God? To discern the will of God. They used it for different purposes. As an expression of real devotion to God. It is abhorrent. And that's why it's called an abomination. So note also, God judged, that is, he drove out the Canaanite nations for these abominations. He drove them out. Again, verse 3, he calls it that, according to the abomination of the nations. a strong word. It was an abomination. That's, that's the reason, one of the reasons God 
spewed them out of the land. He cast them out when Israel came to conquer. Their iniquity was full. And this was part of it. The abhorrent practices. Not just an innocent people. Doing whatever their customs thought was best. They were offering children up through the fire. God hated it and removed them. And now Israel, the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, is engaged in this very thing. It is an abomination on so many levels. We don't have this form of overt child sacrifice in our culture. Other cultures do, sadly. But there are manifestations today, aren't there? To me, the most obvious of those is in the area of abortion and infanticide. More subtle versions of the same idolatry. We do it behind closed doors, out of sight, in sterile clinics with children that aren't seen. But it's the same motivation, the same idolatry at play here. Oh, no, not worshiping Moloch, necessarily, but various other idols. Now, I know that there are many and varied motivations and circumstances for women and men seeking abortions. And we seek to be compassionate and understand where they're coming from. So thankful for the ministry of Hope Pregnancy Center and other pregnancy centers that seeks to be compassionate and reach out. But, but just underneath those, there are functioning idols. Right? Yes, it's a more sophisticated form of idolatry. Whether that idol be convenience, the child will interfere with my plans, career, I've got career plans, this will hinder. Maybe it's just fear. Fear, I don't know what this will mean for me. Or today, the idol of reproductive freedom. Reproductive freedom, autonomy, my body, my choice. That's what we hear, don't we? It's just been remarkable to me since the Dobbs decision. And by the way, praise God for that decision. We should just give thanks and celebrate that that happened in our nation. That overturning of Roe Wade. We pray for that for decades. The fight's not over. We know that. But praise God for that. And now we know that things have been kicked back to the states. And it seems like the temperature of this whole debate has really risen, isn't it? It's everywhere now today. Maybe you face it at work. You face it at school. It's certainly on the news today. And what I've been just fascinated by watching these accounts is... The argumentation that's gone on and it's all about reproductive freedom, autonomy, my body, my choice and and portraying the hardships of those who might not be allowed to get an abortion and never anything about the harm to the child. That's what we're talking about. Killing a child. Oh, Christian, don't lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. And all this rhetoric and all this debate there is really no substantial difference between abortion and infanticide. It is at the bottom line a killing of a child. 
It is an abomination. We should be horrified by it, are we? We're called to just have conviction and, excuse me, clearly communicate. And I hope we're equipped to do that. Yes, with compassion. We need compassion and we need conviction. And we're so thankful for his mercy. So, the modern form that faces us today. And let me just add that note for any that have experienced that or been through abortion for whatever reason. Just extending God's mercy. His mercy is greater than all our sin. All our sin. Find forgiveness. Find mercy in Him. Second, just let me finish here with these last two a little quicker. Idolatry's mistrust. Idolatry's mistrust. The second scene there, or the first story there of Ahaz is when these two rulers, one from Israel and one from Aram, have come up to wage war and have him closed in in Jerusalem, and he is terribly afraid. And instead of turning to the Lord, he turns to Assyria. So that's first. Ahaz does not trust Yahweh for deliverance, but turns in submission to Assyria. Assyria. Now, this is a more subtle form of idolatry, more subtle, more implicit in the text here. But this is a not trusting, not believing the Lord and turning to your own wisdom, your own resources, turning to the big guy on the block, right? Remember Tiglath-Pileser? I'll put his picture up there again because we highlight. In fact, the last time we were in Second Kings, we looked at Tiglath-Pileser. Remember from the British Museum? He really brings the Assyrian Empire back to ascendancy. They are the major power now at this time. And so he goes to them for help and he makes a covenant with them. He becomes their vassal, their servant and their son, he says. He buys them off. He empties the treasuries of the the temple and of the palace. Now, that's never good. This is an implicit criticism. You should have trusted the Lord. The Lord was their warrior. The Lord would fight for them. The Lord would defend them. Now, Israel is unique in this. This doesn't apply to nations today in the same sense to him. It's not that Ukraine should not have sought help and should have just relied on the Lord to overcome Russia. Now, this is a unique application, obviously, to Israel because he promised them, I will fight for you. I will defend you. Do not make alliances with foreign nations. That never leads to good things. But he does. He does. Now, I don't have time this morning, but if you'd like to, even in your small group, you can go over to the book of Isaiah. Cross-reference here, Isaiah chapter 7 and eight, and you can read about this whole account. It's the exact same account. This is when the pro- God raises up the prophet Isaiah in the nation of Judah, and he challenges Ahaz to trust the Lord, and Ahaz won't. Ask a sign, and he won't. He doesn't trust. He tries God's patience. He prefers pragmatism over the promise of God. Now, what's fascinating is it works they he delivers them they he kills off the king we read in chapter 15 what he does to israel he brings devastation tiglath-pileser brings devastation on israel in the north there in those campaigns and wipes out much of their territory up north. so it works it works well but oh how short-sighted 
This will prove to be disastrous for Judah, this allegiance with Assyria. So this is a more subtle form of idolatry, a misplaced trust. But it is the very idolatry, I think, that we are most prone to, this misplaced trust. It's hard for us to gauge our hearts. Where is our trust? Is it, is it in our resources, in our health, in our wisdom, or bottom line, in the Lord? Here's a question. Just to leave you with this to ponder, think about, even as you meet in groups. In times of trouble, get to that. Sorry. In times of trouble or distress, do we serve a functional God? Do we serve a functional God? Kurt talked about that in his message in Colossians chapter 3. Our functional gods, what we really obey, what we really trust in. And often it is difficulty that exposes that, isn't it? Where's ours? We've lived through these pandemic difficulties these past two years. And as I said, I, I pray one of the good uses of the Lord in that is to expose false trust. What do we fear ultimately? What do we hope in? What do we bank our hopes in ultimately? May he be kind to expose that idolatry even in our own hearts. Last third, I need to finish with this, idolatry's innovations. Idolatry's innovations. The focus really of this chapter of Ahaz is at the end there on the alterations to the temple that he makes, which is unprecedented. No king in Judah has taken it upon himself to simply start altering the temple. But he does. Now, it's a fascinating account because we're not exactly sure what he did and we're not exactly sure why he did it. But just the fact that he did do it is astonishing. Messing with the temple? Not wise. In fact, dangerous to your health. He should have learned, right? He should have learned from his grandfather, Uzziah, that good king who in a moment of pride, he got so proud, he thought he could enter the temple and offer sacrifice. And he did with his incense. And the Lord struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. And he had to live separate. That was a good king. He should have learned from his ancestors there of Nadab and Abihu. Right at the inception of the tabernacle, they thought they would uh, experiment with a little of their own worship. And were killed. We don't know. It seems this. I'll just note this. Ahaz was eager to assimilate international fashions into the temple and accommodate the Assyrian king. We don't know all his motivation. It just tells us that when he went up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, he saw in Damascus their altar, the one they used for worshiping their pagan gods. And he was enamored with it. And he's thinking, this is so much better than our altar. You know, ours is so old. It's been there so long. It's outdated now. This is the new fashion here. It's in Damascus. Let's, let's make a model of that. And so he does. And again, it's implicit in the text, but that word that's used that he sent the pattern down to his priest. And by the way, the high priest is saying, well, let's just do it. Where's the priest standing up and saying, no, 
We don't alter the worship of Yahweh, but he goes right along with it. But he sends that pattern and that little word pattern. That's the word that's used. Remember when God gave the pattern for the tabernacle, the pattern for the temple and its furnishing? That was God's pattern. And now there's a new pattern here based on Damascus. Yeah. So he starts, builds this, he comes down, they install it, they move out of the way that old archaic bronze altar and put the new fashionable one in. And then he starts, I guess he just has courage to make other changes. We don't know why he makes them. Now here's, remember the picture of the temple? I'll put that up there for you. It's been a while. We spent a lot of time on the temple, a lot of detail because God cared about every precise detail because it had meaning, significance for worshiping him and it seems that he he takes these little stands there little carts that have uh, water a laver on them for some reason he takes apart those stands and takes all those little wash lavers off there and then what's called the sea the sea is just that huge tub of water 10,000 gallons had lots of meaning there sat on the back of 12 oxen that faced the four directions here and for some reason he he took it off the oxen and put it on a stone pavement he moves you see the altar there that's the altar, the bronze altar, the, that altar there. That's so key for sacrifice. He just moves it out of the way. Are you kidding? Puts his altar there. He makes a couple other changes. We're not really sure what they are. The Sabbath covering there and the king's entry. He seems to do that out of compliance to Ahaz or to Tiglath-Pileser, the, the Assyrian king, to accommodate him. We don't know all his reasoning, but he felt a freedom to distort, to change, to deviate this worship. Here's the lesson. Distorting God's prescribed pattern and means of worship is another form of idolatry. Remember, he's an idolater. He feels a freedom to do that. There's no reverence here. He just changes things. It's just another form of idolatry. God had prescribed. We, we looked at it in detail because it's given in detail all the prescriptions of the temple. And all that they meant, don't mess with any of these. Even if you think they're outdated, don't mess with these because they communicate who God is and how you approach him. It's the point of the temple. So much significance. So distorting God's prescribed pattern or means is another, just another form of idolatry because it ultimately distorts who God is, the knowledge of God, as he has prescribed this is today's version of I worship God in my own terms. I worship God my own way. Heard that? I don't need church. It's me and Jesus. What do I need a church for? It's another form of aberrant worship or idolatry. Be careful. The big takeaway here, I need to finish with this. Remember, why, why is this so deadly here to be changing the temple the temple stood at the center of Israel's covenant relationship to God. It communicated their approach, their relationship to God, God meeting with his people, God dwelling with his people in their midst. How you approach, how does God dwell with a sinful people? That's what the temple is all about. And ultimately pointing us forward to Jesus, the temple. That's where this story is going. And so the takeaway for today is that true worship today is only in and through Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the temple. All other expressions, forms outside of Christ are yet another version of idolatry. 
It is in and through Christ alone. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. That's why that temple is so important. It points us to Christ. Do you know him? Again, he's the main figure of all these stories. He's the fulfillment of this temple. He is the way that we worship the Father. Do you know him? Are you trusting in him for your relationship to our God this morning? Let's pray and we'll pick up next Sunday. Oh, Father, thank you for your word that reveals who you are. May we be those who love you in Jesus, trusting alone in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, coming to you only through him. May we hold fast to your word and not deviate. May we uphold your word even in a culture that is increasingly hostile to it. Give us grace as we go from here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.